exciting song about worshiping the Lord, right? Magnifying the Lord. And so I hope your nerves calmed and they'll be calmer next time. We're going to be having more special music in the coming weeks. Elaine's working on organizing that. And also, you know, I'm teaching Genesis in Sunday school, but we're talking about, though it's not definitive yet, we're talking about uh, Pastor Bill leading a class in November, December on spiritual gifts. So you'll hear more about that uh, in the coming weeks. Turn to Romans chapter 14 in your Bibles, Romans 14. We've been trekking our way through Romans, and we'll be finishing Romans in about six weeks, just in time for Advent. And uh, for Christmas, and also maybe in time for the rapture, uh, which we're praying for every day. I think I heard about people that would uh, turn on, get up in the morning and feel okay, and then turn on the news and they don't feel okay anymore. And then they're reminded we need to pray for the rapture. We need to pray for Jesus to come again because that will eventually fix everything when Jesus comes again. Well, you know, just a reminder, in Romans uh, 14, we're getting into matters of Christian ethics, Christian living. We're getting into matters of conscience, conscience issues. We're getting into matters of, 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 of being the ambassador of Christ. In Romans chapters 1 through 11, it was all rich theology, rich doctrine. Um, we all need a Savior. Genesis, uh, Romans chapter 1, I don't know why I said, well, I just taught Genesis. That's why I said Genesis. But Romans chapter 1. We have this litany of sins, uh, mainly about the Gentiles. The Gentiles need a Savior. Romans chapter 2, he targets the Jewish people, the people of Israel. You are without excuse. You need a Savior. Romans chapter 3, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 4, he talks about Abraham, but Abraham was justified. That is, That means to be declared righteous. He was declared righteous by faith, not by works of the law, not by, works of, not by, this, by sacrifices or anything he was justified. Justified, declared righteous by faith, and he continues kind of interweaving these types of themes all the way through Romans chapter 11, especially Romans chapters 9 and 10 and 11 about Israel, and that God was consistent with his promises. And then in the end of Romans 11, he has this great doxology, this great worshipful ending. Who has known the mind of the Lord, right? You know how awesome the Lord is. And then in Romans 12, he gets into Christian living. And it's always that the, the indicatives, which is, you know, the, just what it is, the theology, the theology leads to the imperatives, okay? It's always that way in, in these letters. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all these indicatives. That's kind of a literary word. It, it's, it's all the theology, rich theology, and that leads to the imperatives, that leads to the actions. You know, because of the rich doctrine, because of the rich theology, that leads to our behavior. Everybody is a theologian. A theologian, it means uh, the study of God. And no matter what, even the most supposed secular, non-believer, non-Christian atheist, they all have a worldview and opinion about God. They might say they don't believe in him. Well, Proverbs says, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. You know, so God's word right there is saying that's foolish. But that is their belief of God. Everybody has a belief about that. And oftentimes we are trying to treat the imperatives, the actions, which out, without going deeper to the belief system. Romans chapters 1 through 11 are the belief system, the theology, the doctrine. And that leads to the actions. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 are the belief system. The belief system leads to the actions. 
Many times, maybe for your friends or family, you're asking and you're saying, why, why aren't you going to church? Maybe your children, your grandchildren. In reality, you need to go deeper into the belief system. People act consistent to their values. If people's worldview values their relationship with God and they see the great need for the corporate worship of the body of Christ, that leads to our actions. But oftentimes, we're just trying to treat the behavior without going to the belief system. Well, we see the Apostle Paul being inspired by God, right? You know, it's inspiration here. We see him going to the beliefs first. He does that in every one of his letters, in every one of his books. It could be you yourself. You, people may be pressing you, and you're here, or maybe you're watching online for the first time in six weeks. And your friends and family are saying, you need to be in church more. And maybe God is convicting you right now. To think about your belief system. Sometimes we are acting inconsistent with our belief system. Our belief system is the Lord is the Lord of heaven and earth and, and he reigns supreme. But our behavior is not reflecting that. And we're kind of an oxymoron right there. And we might need to think it through and think about that. I was convicted of that as Meg and I were talking to a friend, a family, well, a family member, and we would ask, look, you need church in your life. You're not involved in Christian community. I mean, all of Paul's letters were written to churches. You realize that? Romans was delivered to a church. And what they do? They gathered. They stood for hours while they read the whole epistle of Romans all in one sitting. Can you believe that? All in one sitting. Now, Ephesians you could read in about 15 minutes. But Romans, that would take like an hour. And they read it and they talked about it at a church. You see, the New Testament times, they were heavily persecuted. And they knew they needed the church. And as Meg and I talked to a family member about church commitment, uh, I was convicted. Look, you need to go to the underlying problem. What's most important? Who is our God? Well, Paul, in Romans chapters 1 through 11, targeted the belief system. And then he went to the imperatives. Then he went to the behavior. And so we get to Romans 14, and we're going to get to conscience issues. In Chuck Colson's book, Who Speaks for God, it was written around 1985, and most of you know, someone said I talk in footnotes, so here's the footnote. Um, most of you know Chuck Colson was Nixon's hatchet man, and he went to jail for President Nixon, but he was saved right before going to jail. He came out of jail in the mid-70s, and he started prison fellowship ministries, and he started Breakpoint, which is on Christian radio. You can hear it now. Uh, Chuck Colson is with the Lord now, but he wrote many, many marvelous books. One of his best, How Then Shall We Live, or Now Then, How something about how, how, how we shall live, you know, and many, many great things. Now there's the Colson Center for Biblical Worldview. Well, in his book, Who Speaks for God? He writes about a 60-minute interview with Mike Wallace, and I'm going to mispronounce his name. It's, it's, it's uh, probably Yiddish. It's Yehiel Denor. Denor was a Jewish writer and Holocaust survivor. Denor spent two years at Auschwitz. In 1961, at the Nuremberg Trials, on June 7, 1961, he came to the courtroom for the Eichmann trial. The Eichmann trial. You know, this guy who was a German Nazi soldier and, you know, uh, supervised the torture of many Jewish people. And in his opening statement, Denor presented a different opinion about the Holocaust, than the other, well, a differing opinion than the other well-known Holocaust writers, such as Eli Weissel. By presenting the Holocaust as a unique and out-of-this-world event, this is what Denor said. He said, I do not see myself as a writer who writes literature. This is a chronicle from the planet Auschwitz. 
I was there for about two years. The time there is not the same as it is here on earth. And the inhabitants of this planet had no names. They had no parents and no children. They did not wear clothes the way they wear here. They were not born there and did not give birth. They did not live according to the laws of the world here, and they did not die. Their name was a number K. Setnik. But after saying this testimony in the Eichmann trial, Denor fainted. He collapsed. In an interview on 60 Minutes on February 6, 1983, Denor recounted the incident of his fainting at the Eichmann trial to Mike Wallace. Was Denor overcome by hatred or fear or horrid memories? No. That's not why he, that's not why he fainted. It was none of those. Rather, as Denor explained to Mike Wallace, all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. He said, I was afraid about myself. That's what Denor said. I saw Denor, the man who was in the Holocaust, tortured by Eichmann and others. He said, I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. As he looked upon Eichmann, as he looked upon Eichmann, not in his military uniform anymore, but as, an, as, as a prisoner, as a normal man, he saw the evil within humanity. And he realized he himself is capable of evil. One of the things Romans chapters 1 through 11 addresses is that we all need a savior. We all have a, a deep, deep sin problem. And Jesus wants to fix us, certainly through salvation and also through us uh, letting Jesus wash us with the water of the word of God, with the Holy Spirit, and raise us up in him. Thomas Jefferson shared, in matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. In matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. You know, that's a good quote from America's, one of America's early theologians, uh, Thomas Jefferson. He really was not an early theologian. I'm somewhat saying that tongue-in-cheek. In fact, while he was president, he uh, wrote his own Bible. And he took all the miracles out of the gospel and out of the gospels. And actually, he gave that, that Bible. He didn't give, but that Bible was reprinted and given to every member of Congress from about 1800 through the early 1900s. That Bible without the miracles. Because rationalism, rationalism had uh, trumped miracles. But at the same time, that quote is good. In matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. I mean, a few weeks ago, I you know, had this abscess strained on the back of my head. It was a lot of fun. Everybody should have that happen at some point in their life. And it's still kind of healing, I think, pretty good. But I came in on Monday, and my head was totally wrapped because they didn't bandage it well at the hospital. And, uh, or maybe that's the best way. But, you know, have you ever seen that Revolutionary War picture where it has a drummer and then the guy playing the clarinet? Now, I do not know how they drew straws for the person who got to be the drummer and, and, the, and the clarinet player in those battles because it doesn't seem – it seems like they're pretty vulnerable. But there's – the clarinet guy has this big bandage around his head, and as somebody who's kind of a lay historian, I felt like that guy. But in matters of style, swim with the current. 
I love Revolutionary War history. I like to look at the paintings of them signing the Declaration of Independence. But how many of you came dressed this morning like they dressed in 1776? I'm looking out in the congregation. I see no one dressed like that. In fact, I don't see anyone dressed like they did in 1955 either. I wasn't alive in 1955. Um, but I've seen pictures in black and white, and nobody's dressed like that, right? I mean, very few of you are wearing ties, neckties. Styles change. The styles changed since the 70s, thank God, you know? Um, and sometimes they come back, you know, the bell bottoms and things like that. I don't think they fully come back yet, and maybe some of you want them to because maybe you still have some of those clothes in your closet. But in matters of style, Jefferson was saying, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. Today we look at a passage dealing with style, not principle. But we must realize how corrupt and evil we can be. I shared that Eichmann trial example, right? Some of us become, you know, mean and harsh about matters of style, not matters of principle. Uh, we've talked in spiritual life, you know, we want everybody to feel comfortable when they come in to worship here at Bethel Friends Church. And if someone comes in and they're homeless, dressed in tattered clothes, and maybe they haven't taken a shower in weeks, or someone with tattoos from head to foot or piercings, we want them to feel comfortable to hear the gospel, don't we? We want you know, everybody to be able to have the opportunity to hear the gospel, because Jesus is the hope of the world. And sometimes Christians can make matters of style into matters of principle, and we can be the most critical people. Sometimes Christians also can cling to matters of style that are 50 years outdated. You know, they say, you know, when the 1950s come back, certain churches will be ready because <laughs> they haven't moved on. They have in the parking lot, though, because there's very few 1953 Chevys out there. I don't know that there's any out there this morning. I would love to see a 68 GTO if anyone has one, though. But, you know, it's just not we drive. It matters of style. Swim with the current. Matters of principle stand like a rock. I had a pastor's book I was used, given in college. Not given, I had to pay. I had to pay for it. They didn't give me my books. But, um, and it said the pastor should be, and this was written in the 80s, a different day. The pastor should, be, uh, should not be the first into a new style and the last out of an old style. Styles change. Things change. We were celebrating an anniversary at my church in Cincinnati, and we were digging up information for the 125th anniversary of the church. And in the early 1900s, that church had a big dispute about whether to put a restroom inside the church. Can we really put a toilet inside the church? I think we have about 12 here, praise God. You know, and sometimes we get divided over things that we shouldn't be divided over. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, The Grace Awakening, shares a story about a family that went on the mission field to Africa or somewhere. And they missed peanut butter. They didn't have peanut butter in that particular country. So they had friends and family that would send them peanut butter from the States. They love peanut butter. I love peanut butter. Peanut butter is great. You know, I heard about candy corn. The best way to eat candy corn is dump it out and grab a Reese's peanut butter cup instead. You know, they missed peanut butter in that country. So people sent them peanut butter. But they had a legalistic role in that country. Christians weren't supposed to eat peanut butter. True story. And that became such an issue they eventually had to come home from the mission field because people were so offended that they ate peanut butter. Now, I have the whole Bible right here in front of me, and I see nothing about peanut butter in the Bible. It's a conscience issue. It's not here. 
And we must beware. That is what Paul gets into in this passage. He's getting into conscience issues. I mean, if you look at Romans 14.1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. What did weak in faith have to do? It had to do with dietary laws. And people who thought they had to follow all the Jewish dietary laws. And Paul recognized they had the freedom. They could eat bacon. You know, they could eat these different meats and these different foods. They didn't have to follow these dietary laws. And Paul says to welcome each other, love each other, and not to, not to quarrel, not to dispute. Love each other. And this whole chapter of Romans 14, even going to Romans 15, is going to be about that very issue. Loving each other, not to quarrel over opinions. Verses 1 through 8. Don't pass judgment on one another. What does he mean by weak in faith? I just alluded to it. He will tell us in a few minutes, but this is about conscience issues. Paul knew that we have the freedom. It seems that this is really about eating food sacrificed to idols. One source shares the weak were Jewish believers who felt that eating meat offered to a false god was an act of idolatry. So they ate vegetables only. The apostle Paul was saying, we have the freedom to eat that meat. But we don't want to offend each other, so let's love each other. This subject is addressed again in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. I took an exegesis, which is a Greek class on 1 Corinthians in seminary, and read a, guy's dissert, a man's dissertation about that, that section. It was very informative. It seems that between Romans and 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul would talk a little bit differently about it in different times because uh, they were not to go into the idol's temple and eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Christians cannot participate in that type of idolatry. But the meat sacrificed to the idols was sold in the marketplace, on the streets. There was nothing wrong with that. The meat was sold for a cheaper, a discounted price because it had already been used for a sacrifice. And for some early on Christians right there, I'm sure the discounted price was a good thing. And Paul was saying, you have the freedom to eat, but let's not offend each other. Let's welcome each other. They have the freedom. The principle is to welcome others. Paul says, the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But notice the rest of the passage. Not to quarrel over opinions. Paul says, welcome him, but don't quarrel. Let it go. Some of us, I'll say us, I'll include myself, sometimes have the problem where we think it's our job to fix everyone. We can't do that. And he's being noted that Paul was, is writing about what, what he's writing about here concerns matters of conscience. This is not about things where the scripture is very clear. If we can quote the scripture, go to chapter and verse, quote the scripture, and then you are quoting God. God is a judge. These are matters of conscience. We're not called to fix everybody with our opinions on matters of conscience. If it is a biblical scriptural issue, that is totally different. If we are talking to a brother or sister in Christ about something commanded in Scripture, God is a judge, and we are merely the mouthpiece. For many other conscience issues, we need to sing the frozen song, let it go. And trust me, I have to pray about that myself all the time. Because I feel like I can make a very opinionated argument about certain matters that I think are important, but not clearly grounded in Scripture. We need to let it go.
In verses 2 through 4, he says, don't pass judgment on diet. Romans 14, 2, look at it. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Right? This is a dispute. It became a dispute, such a dispute that the Apostle Paul wanted to address it. Obviously, God inspired him to address it here in the Scriptures. One person believes he made anything. I saw it quoted on line. I dabble in essential oils too. I like bacon grease, you know. Uh, if you follow the Jewish law, you weren't allowed to have bacon. You weren't allowed to have that type of stuff. Well, the, some of the Greeks, some of the early Christians, they were Greco-Roman in culture. They felt the freedom to eat this stuff. And some of the others thought, no, we don't have the freedom to eat that, so we'll just eat vegetables only. And Paul is encouraging them, let it go, respect, love each other, welcome each other, let it go. Why does the weak person eat only vegetables? It's because the weak person believes it's wrong to eat meat sold into the marketplace that has been part of a sacrifice to demons. Look at verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. It's like he's saying if God has welcomed him, shouldn't we welcome each other? Shouldn't we be loving to each other? Don't despise one another. Don't judge the person who eats the meat sacrificed idols. God has welcomed him. Look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He's asking questions. We are not in a place to, for, to pass judgment. The Lord will make him stand. He'll stand before the Lord someday. We will all stand before the Lord someday. In verses 5 through 6, he moves on, and now he starts to say, don't pass judgment based on days. Don't pass judgment based on days. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He's talking about conscience issues. He says that each person must be convinced in his own mind. It appears that Jewish people thought they had to follow Sabbath days and certain other holy days, though the Gentiles did not feel obligated to do so. And he really doesn't rebuke or reprove either side. He says, love each other, welcome each other, don't quarrel, quit dividing over these things. The Bible does not give a direct command on these issues. Look at verse 6. The one who observes the day... Observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So they're both giving thanks to God. They are both honoring the Lord. They are both observing these days in honor of the Lord. Let it go. In the reason, we all belong to the Lord. Look at verses 7 through 9. Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Isn't that interesting? We don't live for ourselves. We're not to live for ourselves. We must always live for the Lord. Verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Look at verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again. That he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Christ died and lived again. How? Through the resurrection, right? This is so that he is Lord of the dead and of the living. 
He is Lord on both sides of eternity. He is Lord everywhere at all times and outside of time. And in verses 10 through 12, every, every believer will be judged by the Savior. Every believer will be judged by the Savior. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. All of us. He's referring to the Bema seat, which in the Greco-Roman culture was a raised platform in kind of a town square. And it was a judgment seat. And he's saying we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul is appealing to the ultimate judge, which is God. Look at verses 11 through 12. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. When we see as it is written in Scripture, that means he's about to quote an Old Testament passage. Paul quotes an Old Testament passage. And notice, notice, every knee shall bow to God. Every tongue shall confess to God. Each each of us will give an account to God. Everyone, each person, each of us will give an account. You've got the words each, you've got the word every, you've got the word all. This stresses those three statements. We will all stand before God. Someone points out there's a strong emphasis in these verses on recognizing Jesus' lordship of our lives. The word Lord occurs seven times in verses 5 through 9. Seven times in verses 5 through 9. I want to make some applications, and in these applications we will review a little bit. Some of you might be thinking, you've already offended me and made some applications, exhorting me to let things go, and well, we'll just do it again here. So ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the one I ask that you seek in prayer uh, for any correcting or anything like that. Maybe, maybe some of you aren't offended. You felt like, yes, you've given me permission to let some things go. And sometimes we all need that. So in this passage, we are seeing we're not to pass judgment regarding matters of conscience. We're not to pass judgment regarding matters of conscience. I may say something that might anger some of you, but if your children and grandchildren are coming to church and they're coming in shorts and a t-shirt and you want to choose that battle, I would encourage you to let it go. Be happy that they're coming to church. You know. Now, maybe if you have a super close relationship and the Lord presents you an opportunity and you want to talk about dressing up a little bit, then by all means do so. But Paul is saying here, don't quarrel over things like that. Styles change. Remember that. This means if someone believes they must follow in this passage Jewish dietary practices, we must not look down upon that person. Maybe you know people who want to follow Jewish dietary practices still today. That's okay. Allow them to do so. Don't, don't flaunt your freedom in Christ to, to dabble in bacon, you know, grease and, and things like that. Uh, everything is better with bacon. Um, I am very glad that God made all foods clean. If one person believes they are to follow the ascetic dietary practices, some of this may, what Paul may be talking about, may not be Jewish dietary practices, might be other ascetic worship beliefs. And Paul's saying, let it go. We must not look down on people because of certain beliefs. And we also must not flaunt 
our freedom in Christ. If one believes they're okay to eat, not following those practices, they must be careful not to look down on others. If one believes they should observe Saturday or Sunday as holy, we must not look down upon them. You know, in church history, we've had people that have still followed uh, Friday night to Saturday night Sabbath, and that's certainly fine. There's others that set aside Sunday, and that's fine. There's others because of their work, maybe as a doctor, a paramedic, a police officer, they, they take and they set aside another day of the week as a day of rest, and that is fine as well. If one, who Paul calls a strong, believes they are free from observance of other certain days, don't look down on others. We must do whatever we do in honor of the Lord. That's what verse 6 says. In honor of the Lord. Thank you. And that's the next point of application. Are we living for the Lord? That's verses 5 through 8. Uh, verse 8, actually. Are we living for the Lord? Are we giving thanks for everything that God... I like what Steve shared uh, from the Moody Radio. You know, that's a good devotional exercise. What are we thankful for? Can we think of 10,000 reasons? Are we thankful every time we take a breath? Are we thankful for running water? Are we thankful for salvation in Christ? Are we thankful for the Bible, the Word of God, undiluted, you know, when the missionaries were here last week, somebody asked them about the scriptures available in Hong Kong. And um, if I recall, she said, you know, they are available in Hong Kong. In China, though, they want to have the Chinese version, which is approved by the government, which has changed the scriptures, changed the word of God. Are we grateful and thankful that we have the scriptures readily available in many translations for us? In great programming like Moody Radio and, and that other Christian radio station around here, which is escaping me, I might think of it in a minute, you know, and Caleb and many other things. Are we thankful? Are we grateful? But are we living for the Lord? Are we organizing our affairs around the Lord? Are we making Jesus Lord of our life? What is the center of our life? Is Jesus the center? And with Jesus being the center, are, are our spiritual disciplines the center of our life? Now, I have to uh, share, some people truly cannot make it to church. They truly are shut-ins. They have health issues or work issues or other things. They're a caregiver. They can't make it to church, and, and we never want to reprove or rebuke them. We want to give them freedom and make them feel better and thankful for things like virtual worship and, and things that we send in the mail, bulletins and things like that. But our, for others, do we put Jesus and everything about Jesus in the center of our life? I've shared this before, and, and I might have even shared it a few weeks ago. But if you imagine your life like the solar system, you've got yourself in the middle. You've got yourself in the middle. And everything revolves around you, right? It might be your children, your grandchildren. They're revolving around you. You work. It's revolving around you. Your hobbies, they are revolving around you. And oftentimes, we put our relationship with Jesus revolving around us. That includes church. That includes time in the Bible, time in, time in prayer, spiritual disciplines, devotions, revolving around us. And, and in reality, if we are a Christ follower, if we are a Christian, Jesus is combined with you. In the very middle of our own individual solar system. And if Jesus is combined with you, that means spiritual disciplines. Like, like uh, you have individual spiritual disciplines and we have corporate spiritual disciplines. Corporate spiritual disciplines are worship. Someone has asked me, what's my point in the worship service? Well, your point coming here to, is to worship God. 
We come together. We worship God. And I think it is powerful when the community of Christ comes together and worships God. And we pray together. We pray in unison together. It is awesome when I can look up out on the congregation and I can see everybody with one voice worshiping the Lord. And sometimes if the pianist quits playing for a minute and maybe even the musicians quit singing and all you hear is the congregation all singing together to the Lord. That must be combined with you in the middle, our corporate spiritual disciplines, as well as our individual spiritual disciplines. That's part of your mission as a Christian. So when you get busy, you might cut back on a hobby. You might cut back on other things. You might, you might have to change your work, but you don't change. You don't cut out your relationship with God. But if, but if your relationship with God is orbiting you just like hobbies and work and children and grandchildren, that means when you get busy, you can cut that out. I'm too busy for church right now. Well, praise God, he's not too busy for us. We must recognize we will all submit to God as the ultimate judge. That's what verses 9 through 12 were about. We all submit to God. We must not judge one another concerning matters of conscience. If the word of God is clear about something, anytime we talk about anything, we must quote scripture. Now, I'm going to wade into difficult territory for just one minute, maybe two. Give me a little bit of grace here. The word of God is very, very, very clear that gluttony is sin. That means excess. Excess of eating. A lot of times we apply that to. The word of God is very, very clear. Drunkenness is sin. Anybody who drinks to excess is, is getting drunk. That is sinful. That is wrong. It is destructive. It is destructive for the individual. It is destructive for the family. It is destructive to society. It is wrong. It is sinful. The word of God is very clear based on that, that somebody who cannot control their drinking should not touch it, should not have it in the home. But I was taught in high school youth group that the alcohol in the Bible was non-fermented. That means that the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2, Jesus didn't turn water into wine. He turned water into grape juice. And it was the very, very best grape juice. I bet some of you were taught that. Because that, that theory goes back to Welch, who invented Welch's grape juice. Actually, if you do a little bit of study, we can see that before the, late 17, before the early 1800s, when Welch invented Welch's grape juice, it was impossible to stop the fermentation process. So I was taught that. Upon a little bit of study within a few years, I realized that's just not true. But because of that, people made matters of conscience sin. And they taught anybody who has one glass of wine with dinner or before bed, that's wrong. That's sin. You shouldn't touch it. That's not right. That's inaccurate, wrong Bible teaching. We can't do that. Now, drunkenness, clearly sin. And for the person who cannot control their drinking, that is wrong. Can't touch it. Don't touch it. Stay away from it. Okay? Some would say you don't take that drink. You don't take that first drink. You never get drunk. And that's true. So some, based on matters of conscience, choose to never have it in the home. And that's fine. That's fine. And they can tell people about their role, but they should not judge other people based on their matters of conscience. If others feel the freedom to have an alcoholic beverage here and there in total, complete moderation, we're not to judge them. And the person who feels the freedom to drink alcohol in moderation should not think they are more godly than the other person because they have freedom. And the person who never touches the substance should not feel they are more godly 
because they never touch a substance. These are matters of conscience. The Bible is clear about excess. The Bible is clear about gluttony. The Bible is clear about drunkenness. You can't make an objective biblical argument that everyone must abstain. Again, we apply this to other things. We can indirectly apply this, as I've said, to how one dressed for worship. We should not think we are more holy because we only wear a, a, a dress to church every Sunday if you're female, if you're a man, don't. And we should not think we are more godly because we wear a suit and tie every week to church. We should not feel that we are more godly because we feel the freedom to, to, to stay with the styles. We shouldn't do that. These are conscience issues. We can apply this to sensitive topics, vaccines, facial coverings. In these cases, we are indirectly applying the principle. And Paul tells us to welcome one another, love one another, support one another. And there's been much damage done in the church of Jesus Christ. We take conscience issues and we make them equal to the scripture so much that we are judging each other over things not clear in scripture. Case in point. I know denominations that don't use any instruments in worship. No piano, no keyboard, no organ. You know when the organ was invented, they thought it was just the devil's box of chimes. And a church burned down, and they blamed it on the organ. True story, late 1800s in Canada. They called it the devil's box of chimes. They blamed it on the organ. But there's still churches today say no, no, no music. I know a church that split because one church thought it was okay to have a kitchen. And they thought, we're not allowed to have a kitchen in church. Those things are conscience issues. They're, in the Bible. They're not in the Bible. They're not biblical. we got to love one another. Don't judge on matters of conscience. Again, from Thomas Jefferson. In matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. There are certain things that are super clear in the Bible, and we need to stand like a rock on these things. Human sexuality. From Genesis to Revelation, one man married to one woman for one lifetime. Very clear in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Salvation by faith alone, uh, by Jesus alone. Very clear in Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Very clear in Scripture. Do not murder. Very clear in Scripture. That applies to sanctity of life. Very clear in Scripture. There are many, many things. The commitment to the church, prayer partners, spiritual disciplines, meditating on the Word of God, ruminating on the Word of God. There are many, many things very very clear in scripture but right here paul is telling them don't don't divide don't quarrel over conscience issues and this will be a to be continued sermon because this will he's going to continue this throughout romans 14 dallas willard in his book renovation of the heart was answering why are christians so mean how dare he even call christians mean and he said because we always have to be right and so I encourage you and me of the Frozen song, let it go. Only in matters of conscience. I need to make that very clear. Romans 12, 9 and 10. 10. Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let's pray. Lord God, may this be our charge, that we truly do let love be genuine, that we truly do abhor what is evil, that we truly do hold fast to what is good, that we truly do love one another with brotherly affection, that we truly do outdo one another in showing honor. That's something to compete with, showing love, showing honor. Bless and guide us as we welcome each other and love and support each other in Jesus Christ.
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.